Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to episode three of the Master Your Mix podcast. I'm really excited for you to check out this episode. In this episode, I interview an amazingly talented engineer named Sam Guayana. He's out of Toronto and he's done a bunch of cool productions on labels such as Pure Noise Records, Rise Records, Equal Vision, New Damage. He's done work with bands such as Like Pacific, Cold Front, Heavy Hearts, and many more. And we also get into a really cool conversation about committing in the tracking stage versus fixing it in the mix. He shares a really cool setting to try for mixing vocals. We also talk about how he controls the low end in his mixes and what he does to add some excitement to choruses in his tracks. And we also talk about his general mixing philosophy and his process that he likes to use. I think he shares some really cool tips and I'm really excited for you to check it out. So let's dive in. So Sam, thanks for being on the podcast. For people who might not be familiar with who you are or what you do, can you give us a little background? Uh, basically, I'm a full-time producer, engineer, mixer in Toronto. And uh, I basically started when I was like 14, just um, out of my bedroom, like a lot of people did, and uh, sort of got my hands on a little bit of gear, like an M-Box and a crappy computer. And um, just from there, started making demos for myself and for my friends. I ended up going to an arts high school around the same time, and uh, a lot of bands were out of that school. So a lot of young guys my age and even a couple of guys like older and stuff, they all were in bands wanting to record. And I was like, hey, you know, like come to my place and we'll just shoot the shit and make a demo and whatever happens. And basically, I guess around 2008 or 2009, I realized that it's something I'm decently good at and want to keep sort of doing. So I sort of pushed all my efforts into that. I was playing in bands and stuff too. I still play in bands and everything, but it basically the recording took over as a, hey, I can do this for life thing, or hopefully, you know, for the rest of my life thing. Cool. And you're a drummer, right? Yeah. Awesome. So having made the transition from being a drummer to a producer, how do you feel that your ability to play drums has influenced the work that you do? It uh, it helps me on the production end, keeping the like rhythm of a song solid, like drum and bass. I play bass second. Um, so the relationship between those two are really important to me, especially in rock songs. Basically, like drum, drum and bass carry everything along, and um, being able to know kick patterns or being able to know that um, this is an appealing way to do something with a drum kit that can accent everything, I think is like a really big thing. And it's also at the same time, it's also a bit—I don't want to say of a bad thing. I, I will, I'll admit that I'm not the strongest songwriter, like right from scratch. And it's, you know, I don't really, while I can play guitar, I don't sit down and play a guitar actively a lot or write a lot of songs. But for some reason, I feel like it has helped me finish songs or it's helped me take an acoustic demo that a band brings in and turn it into a full song. Because while they play that song, I can hear the arrangement of the drum and bass behind it or think of a cool way to change it up for that to work and things like that. Yeah, I totally hear you. Like, I'm a drummer too, so I can totally relate to that. Sometimes feeling like you don't really know the notes necessarily that they're playing on the guitar. Cause I, I mean, you play bass, so you probably have a much better idea than I do, but like, it just helps knowing like the rhythm and like just having a, like an objective opinion of what sounds good versus what doesn't, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. 
Yeah, yeah. That, and, and that's exactly it, is, is sort of having that objective opinion and um, sort of being separated from the song m- musically, which, you know, obviously I, I understand a lot of music theory now. I took a lot of it. Uh, and like I said, I do play guitar. I know I know chords and things like that a lot better than I used to, definitely. But being a little bit more detached from that lets you sort of s- like snap into the groove a little bit better. Definitely. Definitely. And do you find that you're hard on drummers because you are a drummer? <laughs> oh, my God. So hard on drummers. Like, oh, it's funny. I, I was talking with a band last night that I'm recording in April, and they uh, they were telling me that, you know, some guys are, like, super hard on all musicians or, like, some producers are really hard. But, like, the only guys in bands I'm really hard on generally are drummers because the harder you hit a drum, the more it opens up. And we're not doing like jazz music. I record like punk rock bands or, you know, hardcore bands. You basically have to beat the piss out of your drums and that's how they're going to sound great. And a lot of guys don't. Also, like, I'm really hard on drummers when they don't play to a click because how do you not play to a click? It's just, (laughs) it's a metronome. Everybody can count and everybody can lock into a groove, hopefully. But yeah, so I'm generally, I'm hardest on drummers probably because I am a drummer myself and I should probably be harder on myself. So I take it out on other people. Yeah, I, I think I can relate to that for sure. <laughs> but to your point, like it's just it's it's like usually the first thing you record anyway, and you yeah. know it, it sets the tone for everything. If you don't have the energy in the performance, then everything else is going to sound weak in comparison, right? Oh, definitely, yeah, hundred percent. I can't tell you how many drummers I've seen that just tap their cymbals, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, like fucking dig into it. Yeah, oh, definitely, and it's just like it sets the like you said like. So I do record drums first. There's occasionally times where I'll record them last, but it's always project dependent. But like it can set the tone for everything because it's like the first thing that we're doing on a record. And if that doesn't go well, then, you know, sometimes morale is down and people aren't stoked to do anything else. Or we've we've spent so much time fixing it afterwards that, you know, the drummers lost motivation in it or people have lost motivation in it to the point where it's like, well, you know, does this does this mean the whole record's going to be like this now? Because nobody's stoked anymore so i'm hardest on drummers because the better that they perform on the way in just like with anything the better that you perform on the way in the less that needs to be done and the the happier that it is and even if you are pissed at me afterwards there's no way you're going to listen to your drum take and not be happy you know because i because i worked you so hard you should be happy that it now sounds like you know more professional per se for sure yeah Yeah, i think a lot of people have this misconception that when we mix we're going to like do all this stuff to make it sound that much better and add samples and whatever. And it's like, you can add samples, but it still doesn't really add much when you don't have the original take there, right? Oh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the samples aren't supposed to replace. They're supposed to reinforce what's already good. Yeah. Especially on cymbals. Like, I don't know if you do any tricks with cymbals, like recording cymbals separate or any of that kind of stuff, but like, you need to have great cymbal takes. Like, I I don't think samples really do cymbals any justice. No, they don't at all. Um, and honestly, like, yeah, I've recorded cymbals separately a few times or even just one cymbal separately, things like that. Um, and that's just like with anything, like as long as that separate recording is recorded just as well as the main stuff, it'll blend better. For sure. Yeah. Cool. So, uh, can you tell me a little bit about your current studio setup? I know you've been bouncing around between a couple places recently, or at least I thought you were. No, I mean, I've got my main place that I share with Anton out in the East End, um, and that's just like, it's a two room. We've got a booth. We just never really use it because it's sort of like far back and there's no real ventilation in it or anything. So it's just like a storage room right now. But uh, we have a two room 
big enough to do drums, not super huge, but, uh, you know, we can do a full kit and then, uh, just like a pro tools rig. Uh, I think we have like 24 inputs right now and just like a nice variety of like preamps and things like that, that we've sort of collected over the years. Uh, some great microphones too, and stuff like that. The, a little higher than, you know, your typical project studio, but not like a gigantic commercial studio by any means. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed, um, I, like I've been following you on Facebook and all that kind of stuff for a little while. And I know that you're a big gear collector and you're always like buying new, new pieces and swapping them out. And Oh yeah. I'm addicted to it. Especially 500 series stuff. I'm like, there's like maybe two or th- there's two preamps in my rack that I'll probably never sell. And the rest of them, I honestly like, I'll probably have them listed up next month or something like that. <laughs> which, which ones are those? Uh, the AML easy 1073, which is like a Neve 1073 clone but like for a quarter of the price and it's like made with all the same parts and uh, the Avitas MA5. Cool. Which is like the best preamp in the world. <laughs> what is it about those things that you love so much? Uh, I think a lot of my favorite records are always Neve sound and um, they can be a little soft when you want, but then they can also be very aggressive if you know how to you know gain stage them. And uh, the MA5 is like a Neve, but then with a bit of a cleaner top end it's it's almost like no it's not really api like but it's very much like that big ballsy sound you get out of a neve but without that little bit of a woof that a neve has yeah totally know what you mean oh yeah and they were like the first preamp i ever owned so um i think maybe that's part of the attachment to them too is just like oh my god this is the first like real thing i've owned and it sounds unreal and i've always been happy with it Sometimes you got to keep those things, like the very first thing you ever bought. Like I have my old drum set. It's like this old like Pearl export kit that by today's standards is probably crap, but like <laughs> there's still some magic to it. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So let's shift over to producing a little bit. Um, you produce a lot of records. How involved do you like to get with producing an album? Like, do you get into the songwriting portion of it a lot or are you kind of just like a sit back and let the band do its thing kind of guy? Uh, it's always discussed with the band, but for the most part, I'm kind of right in the middle. I, um... I'll co-write with the band if that's something we talk about in advance. But if not, the only time I'll co-write is if I think something can be better. So generally, you know, like I'm sure I'm sure you you know this too. Like a band will usually send you demos or we'll book like an extra few days to get some demos down. And when those demos are sent over is when I sort of start like pre-pro and uh, listening to them. I, I don't listen to them too often. I don't want to get attached to those versions. So I'll give them a listen to make sure the band, you know, knows what the hell they're doing for the most part. And then, uh, and then when they come in, we usually spend the first day sort of dissecting them a little bit, uh, trimming the fat here and there, and um, you know, just making them sort of like as best as they can be. And the only time I'll co-write at that, or the only time I'll write something when the demos are already done, is uh, when I think they can be better. Like if there's a better chord structure for a chorus, or a better drum beat for a chorus, or something like that, then I'm going to suggest that, you know, hopefully the band is on board. A lot of the times they are, but occasionally it happens when they're not. Um, and yeah, just basically refine the songs and make them as best as they can be. And then from a product, I mean, I, I sort of count that as production, even though it's pre-pro, but for the other part of production, like I'm basically there making tonal decisions the whole time. And uh, what's nice is a lot of bands trust me enough to, to make those decisions. Like I'll mic my favorite amp and my favorite cab, or I'll use, I bought a Kemper recently and I'll use my favorite patches on the Kemper and they'll be pretty stoked on it because they trust me enough 
to do so. So even if they don't bring their own amps, they know that they're still getting what they want out of their recording at the end of the day. For sure. Well, that, that's great that you have great gear too, because I find that so many bands show up with crap gear all the time, at least in my experience. Oh, no, definitely. And that was a big thing too. It's like, I also don't want people to worry. You're hiring me for a certain sound I, I've portrayed in the past, or you're hiring me because of my gear collection maybe or something. So I want I want you to be comfortable and I want you to know that you can use anything of mine and it'll sound, you know, provided you're, you're playing it with, you know, the power you're supposed to be and provided you're committed to your part of the deal, then your record's going to sound as good as anything I've done up till then. For sure. In terms of the pre-production stuff, is there anything that you commonly see that bands do wrong or that you would you know, maybe suggest to people to look out for when they're writing their songs? Uh, not particularly. I think a lot of the time, guys, these days, you know, we're listening to our favorite bands and we know not to drag a lead on too long or not to do a certain thing. So a lot of the times when that happens, it's usually younger bands when they um, have never been in the studio before or something like that. And their demos, you know, they've got like a five minute song and I realize that they're they shoehorned in a guitar solo that doesn't need to be there or the lead guitar doesn't start for 16 bars after the intro when it could have just, you know, come like right off the bat, you know? Yeah. Um, but no, a lot of the times bands these days are a lot more prepared than they used to be. And, and especially ones that take it seriously, understand, they understand criticism, they understand feedback and they understand, uh, you know, how to write a good song and they the best is that they understand that I'm not going to come in and ruin that. I'm only here to make it be- even better. Of course. So it's it's kind of nice. Um, there's Yeah, there's still definitely times where songs come in and I'm listening to them like, what the hell is this? But it happens so much less these days, thankfully. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so in terms of mixing then, because um, you do a lot of that as well, mm-hmm. what's your general mindset when you start a mix? Like, How do you typically approach a mix? Uh, a couple different ways. <clears throat> if it's a band I'm recording, I'm generally doing things along the lines to help my mixing. Like uh, I commit a lot more on the way in these days than I used to. And uh, so, so, you know, when I'm drum tracking, I'll compress the overheads on the way in or, or I'll sm- slam the rooms the way I like the sound already. Uh, I'll EQ the snare and things like that. Especially with vocal tracking, I'm almost always hitting, it's basically 100% these days, the 1073 into an 1176 and EQ'd and compressed almost 100% of the way I want it done already. So in the mix, that's basically ready to go while I'm, you know, while I'm recording. But when a band comes uh, for mix, like when, you know, when I get tracks sent to me to mix, what I'm generally doing is, you know, a decent amount of prep. I always send like a mix sheet out so people know what to do properly and it'll make my life a little bit easier. But uh, when I'm setting up a mix, I generally have a template going on with all of my auxiliary sends, all my like reverbs and things like that. And I'll drop them in um, and basically start from the ground up. Like I, I, I'm a drummer, so I like to start with drums and dial in like a drum sound. I'm not, a lot of guys like, especially when you read books and stuff, it was always so weird where they're like, oh, I like to get the kick and bass relationship. It's like, well, no, that's might have been cool back then, but I don't know. I'd rather get like a really rock and drum kit and build around that. So basically it's I'll start with drums, I'll dial them in basically to how I want them, and then I'll move on to vocals and get vocals sitting with the kit because basically when vocals and drums, in my opinion, when vocals and drums are sort of locked together, everything has its space cuz those two sort of, you know, the vocals are in the middle of a kit. 
And the only other thing usually down the middle is a bass guitar, but a bass guitar you can easily, in my opinion, you, as long as the tone is good, you can easily sort of just find its right spot and it's, it sits with everything else. But the, the vocal and drum relationship is like super important to me. Yeah, it's a really good outlook on it for sure. I, I, I typically go drums and then bass and then vocal. But yeah, yeah same, same idea, right? Just like doing things that are right in the middle and focusing on those first. Yeah, and it, there's definitely no like uh, no like hard and fast rule. I'll definitely like sometimes just do drum and bass if I feel like, especially if I hear the tracks and the bass tone is really sick from the get-go, then I'm probably going to do the bass second. But if my focus is like a pop song or like this vocalist is really ripping it and has cool stuff, I really want to dig into that and make sure that it's being focused on. Because at the, at the end of the day, the only thing the average listener hears is a vocal. Like we spend all this time making drums and guitars sound super sick, but everybody only hears, yeah, a non-musician only hears a vocal. It's true. Yeah. It's like nobody really cares. I feel like that's one of the biggest things that uh, holds people back from finishing mixes is just that like they, they nitpick on the smallest details that only really matter to an engineer. Yeah. Oh yeah. How long does it typically take you to finish a mix? So if I'm starting from scratch, uh, it will take me anywhere from four to eight hours, I'll say safely. Um, and that's usually for the first mix. Like it, the other ones on the same EP will go faster because you, you take care of a lot of the legwork in the first one. But uh, yeah, that's that's usually it, especially when you consider the, uh, you know, recalling and stuff like that. But what's funny is I find I make the like core of the mix in almost no time, like maybe a half hour to an hour of just fiddling around and finding a sample that works well with the snare or getting, you know, relationships together. And then the last few hours is, um, you know, making automation decisions or trying to figure out how to build a proper dynamic into the mix and things like that. Um, but yeah, so the core of it, yeah, the core of it is usually about an hour and then it's another three or four hours just doing the really fine tuning stuff cool and you were saying that you typically send like a mix sheet out to the bands before you start working on stuff uh yeah like a prep sheet i just have like a pdf it's like hey you know please label these files like this please consolidate from the beginning print any specific effects you want like lo-fi vocals or things like that just because i've had some times where like you know one time i got a hard drive from a band and it was the producer's sessions and it was just a super nightmare <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's smart though, because like so many bands, I, I see so many people that just don't name tracks properly, and then you get this mix, and you're like, "What the hell is this?" Like, yeah, audio, audio one, one, audio yeah. two, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it definitely makes sense if you can clarify a bunch of that stuff ahead of time. Oh yeah, definitely. So, um, how do you know when you're normally done your mix? I don't. I don't think I do. <laughs> I mean, I'll. What I'll generally do is I'll take. I shouldn't do this because. Uh, uh, maybe I should. I don't know. It'll, it works up to now. I'll take home what I finished if I'm happy with it already, even if it's not a finished mix, like without automation or something like that. And I'll pop it into my car right away and do that car test. And what's nice is since I've switched to just NS10s, my car test has been a lot more forgiving in the sense of I'm actually pretty happy when I like leave. But a mix isn't finished when I leave. A mix is usually finished when... Like, I won't send it out unless it's finished, but it's usually finished the next day when I have fresh ears to go back and uh, know that I did the car listen, know that I did the iPod headphone listen, and know that I did the phone listen, take a couple notes, go fix those couple things, 
and then I probably still won't even send it out that day. I'll probably still send it the following day so I can just again do another like whatever. So yeah, um, I usually know that the mixes, the first mix is usually finished on the third. So say there's like an EP, like five songs. First mix is usually finished on the third day, but that doesn't mean I haven't started the other ones since I already had the groundwork for them. It just means that I'm now ready after doing a bit more, you know, I, I dug into song three and realized that, hey, I got a cooler vocal sound. Let me go back to song one and see if that sort of made sense for that and uh, and then send it out from there sort of thing. That makes sense. What do you think makes a great mix? Um, a great performance, and I know that sounds like a super cheesy answer, but the truth is my best mixes weren't bands that tracked in crazy studios. They were just bands that did really great jobs at their instruments. Totally. I totally get that for sure. Yeah. I feel like the mixes that I'm like almost the most proud of, when I look back at those sessions and what I did to them, they're like the things that I did the least work on, you know, because like, yeah, the performances are so good that it didn't require all of this touch up stuff. Right. Yeah. You know, you know, when you listen to a vocal right away, like on solo or something, what you want to do to it and the better that it's performed, the clearer of an idea that you have, you know, like you're not cleaning up noise in between tracks or there isn't a proximity effect or something, or even if there is, as long as the performance is still sort of good, you get away with those stuff, that stuff, and it can sort of work to your benefit. Um, and I think, yeah, even when a project is sort of track kind of bad, when you have a clear idea of what you want, it, um, it, because the song is so good, it just comes out like right away. For sure. Yeah, Definitely. So you've been doing it for a while. Yeah. At what point did you start to feel like you were making good mixes? Um, it sort of comes in waves. I I remember I can remember the first time I heard a mix back that I did and thought to myself that it was like, holy shit, I finally did like a mix. Like uh and that was honestly like two thousand eight or two thousand nine. And I did a couple records that year while I was in like college where I was like really stoked. And even some like I'll still sort of check them out today because there's still some stuff in those mixes that I did that I was really happy about but then there was like a middle period in like 2012 where I was like not stoked on anything and I thought that like I lost how to do this you know and then um and then came back again and then when I moved down here I felt like I lost it again after about a year and again it's sort of coming back so it comes in waves but uh the last maybe year or so especially I've been really happy with my mixes and what I can sort of pull out of a track and pull out of, especially for some reason, whenever I mix bands that are sent to me, maybe because it's the fresh ear approach, I tend to just be really excited on the mix right away. And those are the ones that sound really professional. Whereas when I do stuff in my space, I'm working a little bit harder, maybe because I'm, I'm over, like I'm sort of exhausted on the track or something like that. So actually this year I'm trying to take a, di- a bit of a different approach and, um, not mix something right after it's done, sort of do a couple projects and then go to the first one and mix so I can sort of treat it as a fresh thing again. Yeah, that's a great approach. Like, I know I feel the same way. Like, when you're recording something, you're so married to that project and you're so invested in it that, like, you know, you sometimes just need to sit back from it and have that objective opinion. Yeah. You know, it's like fresh ears. It makes a world of a difference. Yeah, and you lose you lose your objective opinion when you've torn a song apart a million times. You know, True. Like when you've tuned every single vocal or when you've chopped every single drum hit, by the time you go to mix drums, you just remember all that. And it's almost like a like a PTSD thing. And you're like, oh, shit, no, <laughs> um, you know, like so 
I don't know, but I think um, that's the that's the thing when we were talking about you know when did you when did you sort of realize uh, the you know when mixes made sense that was the sort of drawback. I think the reason I felt when I moved about a year in that my mixes were sucking was because I was still getting used to the new room and I was still getting used to trying new things out literally every time I recorded, even if it was the same sort of band, I would do different miking or do different something and then be like, oh, this worked last time and it didn't work this time or this didn't work last time and it did work and I'll make notes and realize that there's no set thing that works for everybody. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, you need that trial and error, especially like in your case where you have a new space, you have to try new ideas out and exactly. see what's working and what doesn't, right? And going back to your initial point about having great performers, that in itself takes care of so many of the problems. Yeah, oh, 100%. Like, you know, I might not be happy with my, like I said, my drum room's a little small, so it's it's tough to get like a room sound that I like out of it. But what's nice is if the guy's playing well enough, you know, maybe I don't even need the room mics as much as I thought, or maybe I just the mono to thicken up the middle and I'll find a good verb that works. Whereas before I, I was in a barn before or like a workshop. And the only good thing about that place was that the drum room was huge. So I always had like a natural reverb and I never thought twice about reverb. It always just sounded pretty decent. And now since I moved, I'm like struggling more to hear that drum sound I want out of my space and things like that. Um, but yeah, no, in the last little while, especially it's sort of, I've sort of locked in a bit better. So now that you're in a, a tighter space, what do you do to compensate for that room sound that you lost with your barn? Basically just, um, room samples really help. Like instead of sometimes I won't even do a snare sample, I'll do just like a snare room sample to sort of thicken up the room. Or, um, I mean, I've probably tried every single reverb that's come out in the last couple of years to see what makes sense. And, um, and finally sort of landed on one room. Like, oh, this is cool. It actually sounds like a room and not just like a reverb. Do you mind if I ask what plugin that is? Uh, the slate one, the, the verb suite or whatever it's called. Yep. Has, there was a, a lexicon preset in there that was like a large chamber or something. And I don't know if it was the, the time that was, that I set it to and I was playing with it or whatever. And there's a little bit of like a, a simple EQ on the side, but I, finally made like a drum room where when I listen to it, like it doesn't work for everything. It doesn't really work for kick drum, but that's not a huge deal. But whenever I send uh, my, my overheads to it, I can finally hear sort of like a reverb that doesn't sound like a reverb. It, it does sound like it's actually adding a bit of room weight to the track instead. Yeah, that's nice for sure. Yeah, yeah it's really cool. And it was just a lexicon patch. So I wonder if it, if it's uh you know, it doesn't have to be that slate one for anybody who's listening. You can sort of just find, you know, whatever lexicon verb clone there is out there, I'm sure it can do the same thing. I'm sure, for sure. Is there anything that you do in your mixes or that you find you do often in your mixes that you think other people would say you're crazy for doing? Oh, yeah. For a long time, I don't do it as much anymore. I'll still do it sometimes, actually. All my vocals, no matter what the genre, was all buttons in on 1176s. Awesome. And I remember, oh, I, I loved it. I love the aggression. And um, I have two Hairball 1176s, so they sort of, I don't know what it is about the real ones, but they take the S's out a little bit too. So even though you're slamming the shit out of them, I never used a de-esser. I didn't like have to. It sort of just kind of sat and worked. And what was funny was when Slate was first releasing like plugins, um, I kept, you know, every time he'd post on a thing, I'd be like, well, you know, he released his 1176 and it didn't have an all buttons plugin or an all buttons feature. And I was thinking to myself, like, 
you're trying to tout that these plugins are the best plugins ever, like the most accurate versions, but I can't do the one thing that I do with an 1176. And he's like, well, you know, I've never heard a vocal. I've never heard a lot of people use all buttons on a vocal. And I sent him my demo reel. Like every song on this demo reel has all <laughs> buttons on a vocal. And he messaged back like, oh, that's really interesting. These all sound really great. I'm like, I know they sound really great. They're, I know it works. I'm not a crazy person. But then he, he released that really cool like, 11 like only all buttons in plugin which actually sounds pretty cool although it's a really intense plugin so yeah yeah no definitely i, lo I love the all buttons thing on vocals as well like especially any sort of aggressive like screaming vocal oh, yeah. like they just add so much grit and energy to the vocal yeah they they hold everything in place and a lot of people a lot of people when i told them that the reason they said oh you're crazy is because like it robs the dynamic of the vocal they said but it really doesn't but sometimes that's fine too, right? Yeah. Like depending on the genre, you might you might want to have a super compressed vocal anyway. Yeah, if you're doing like a screamo band, hell yeah, you just slam the vocal and and leave it. But even if you're doing like, you know, I do like a lot of pop punk bands and stuff, and I'll still slam the vocal. And if I want dynamic, I'll build the dynamic myself because I'm building it in everything else. I'm not gonna slack off on the vocals. So um, I always found that interesting. People were like, oh, you know, it's too aggressive and it doesn't move the vocals. Like, well, if it doesn't move the vocal, then you find another way to move the vocal. For sure. It's not the end of the world to do it like that. So that was sort of the one thing that people thought I was crazy for doing for a long time. And But then again, I think it's one of those things that nobody wants to admit they do. But even like you're saying here, like, oh, no, I've, 11, I've done that on a vocal too. Like, <laughs> of course, everybody's done it. It's just... It, it's It's because like... You know, you tell somebody to try that out, and you're like, "Yeah, I use it so often," and then like it just doesn't work for them, and then you kind of feel like you're the you're the asshole for suggesting it. Sometimes, exactly. Right? Yeah. It's like, oh well, you know, sorry, I ruined your vocal. I didn't say for you to ha like you didn't have to use it. <laughs> don't you don't have to commit to yeah. it when you're recording it, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess that's that's one of that's one of the benefits of not committing going in. Oh, definitely. But I appreciate your approach of committing on the way in when you know what you're gonna go after in the mix, like. It's different if you're mixing it yourself versus sending it off to someone else and making it their problem, right? Yeah, and I, and I keep that in mind when we track. If, if I know that a record is going to another producer, I won't do certain things, or another mixer, I mean, I won't do certain things. I won't 1176 a vocal. I'll just do Distressor to hold the peaks down instead or something like that. Um, yeah. So it's definitely, like, project-dependent, and it's definitely, you know, I, I'm not going to 1176... Uh, certain singers if it doesn't work even if I am mixing it because it is an aggressive compressor especially the blue one and uh, and it doesn't work for everybody sometimes so it's not like it's a hard and fast rule in my book it's just whatever whatever makes sense at the time is whatever works you know yeah for sure um, aside from the normal cleanup of making tracks sound like really nice and clear and EQing and compressing all that kind of stuff. How do you go about making creative moves in mixing? Like something, doing something that maybe wasn't in the mix in the first place. Do you, do you find that you struggle to translate those things to the bands or is it something you just kind of do and hope for the best? Uh, what's your approach? It's something I'll do and sort of hope for the best. Um, a lot of times in a lot of records I do, I will do this sort of typical things you expect in a chorus. You know, I'll kick in a doubler, is snuck underneath to widen up the chorus or, um, you know, delay throws in certain spots to make it more interesting. And if a band doesn't like it, I'm, I'm not, it's, I, I have no problem re removing it. It's just, I'd rather try it out than think to myself or get a note from them being like, ah, we hope this chorus would have been more exciting. It's like, okay, well, let me make the chorus as exciting as I want it to be first. And then tell me if it's too exciting, it's easier to sort of like dial down. Whereas I feel like I don't, 
I feel like if I sent a mix off and I didn't do exciting things in it, uh, even if it's trial and error sort of things, I feel like the band's going to listen to it back and they might think, oh, this guy didn't care enough to try something. Um, where the truth is I want to do those things all the time. I'd rather overdo them and then be told to not do them for sure. So a, bi- Fair a big one is that is, yeah, like, you know, uh, mixing in a couple different reverbs in a chorus or bringing up the slap in a chorus or bringing up a quarter note delay, different things like that. Um, what I've been doing lately is automating my parallel uh, compressor for drums in choruses and making them hit a little bit harder. So the snare gets a little fatter and almost a little more pancakier in a chorus than it does in the verse. And it's super subtle, but you just all of a sudden realize like, holy shit, this drum is punching me a little bit more now than it did in the verse. And the reason is because it's the chorus. It's time to punch. Yeah. Well, it's like you said, just like building the dynamics in the mix. Yeah. You know, you have to be doing those little subtle things that really amplify the mix yeah and a lot of genres i work with or a lot of songs i work with they don't have dynamic built in like some of the songs aren't they don't move enough because of the nature of the genre so what you have to do is how do you listen to a two and a half minute hardcore song and keep it exciting without having your ears bleed the whole time you know you figure out sort of the ways to make a verse tinier even if you bring that vocal super quiet or you pan it off or put it in a room for a split second you're now taking this song where if you saw it live would just be a wall of noise and turning it into something creative for this, for the genre, you know? Definitely. Yeah. So in terms of like, I guess going back to starting the mix, do you have any tips for gain staging and like, do you have a, do you have any techniques for that? Not particularly. Um, a lot of the guys do the like minus 18 thing and I don't at all. I don't think it matters. Um, we work in the digital realm for the most part where I don't know how many guys are left on consoles that are my age or your age or anything like that. So a big thing I just keep out for is as long as my tracks aren't peaking in Pro Tools, it doesn't really matter. And if they're peaking in plugins, for the most part, the kind of plugins I use, you can get away with them peaking in because they're programmed to sound like real things. And real peaking is nice. It's digital peaking that sounds like shit. So... If I'm, you know, if I'm running VCC or something like that, and the console's going crazy on VCC, I don't really care. I just listen to it. If it sounds good, I'm going to leave it. If it comp, if it's compounding and really robbing me of dynamic, then yeah, I'll roll back something afterwards. But I never go into it thinking um, about my gain staging. As long as it sounds right to me, I'm usually pretty happy. And as long as it's not digitally peaking, I'm pretty happy too. Awesome. And uh, you were saying you start off typically with your drums yeah. and then you go to your vocals, right? What do you, um, do you have any tips for getting like the low end right and finding that balance with the drums <laughs> and the bass? No. And if you have any tips, please <laughs> let me know. Um, no, I mean, a big thing is, especially these days, you don't need as much low end in a kick drum as you used to. Um, you still need it, but like you can, you can high pass your kicks to 30, 40 hertz and just give a bit of a boost at 60 and that can be your kick low end. You don't have to like, you don't, you know, when everybody's like, oh, it fights with the bass. It's like, no, let the bass have all that low end. That's totally fine. Let the sort of, let the, don't let the kick drum freak you out. And bass guitar, uh, what I normally do with bass guitar is I'll find the most offendingly loud low frequency, dip it out so it sort of is the same volume as the rest of the low frequencies and then just slam that with a compressor and know that the bass is basically going to sit the whole time. Now properly low end balance. So that's sort of my trick is like 
don't fret about the kick drum too much and find your your worst bass frequency and take care of it right away I agree with that for sure. Like I, I do a lot of mastering and that seems to be like one of the biggest problems I find with bass tracks is that there's always that one note that just really jumps out yeah. and, and people don't tame it. And then they wonder why, like, you know, it's just sounding too woofy on certain notes. And it's like, well, just cause you have that there. Right? Exactly. You have to really control that. And a lot of people, a lot of people don't get, I'm, I'm not saying just, I'm not saying mixers. I mean, most mixers do get it, but like there are times where a lot of people don't get they think the lowest note is the one that's too woofy. It's like, no, not at all. That The offending frequency could be the one that your room doesn't produce properly, so you're not noticing. And, you know, they always say mix, your, mix with your ears over your eyes or whatever, but I'll, I'll always, always on bass pull up a pro cue or any graphy cue and look at literally when the notes are played, like, you know, loop the part and find the note that is literally louder than everything else because it's usually like... It's not the one you expect, and then like tame that one right away. For because sure. especially if it's not the lowest note, if you lose a bit of that note or you over tame it, it's not a huge deal. It wasn't the it wasn't the deciding factor. But if that note's too out of control, then you're fucked right away. Like you don't know how to sort of it goes. Like you said, it goes off to mastering, and mastering's got to dip that note out. But now it takes that low end or that frequency out of everything instead of just nipping it in the bud first. Exactly. I think there's so many people that just treat each track as like a track and not as like the notes that make it up too. Yeah. And that's all so important as well, right? Cause you have all these different frequencies that are fighting with the other instruments and, and you just have to make sure that everything's working together. Yeah. It's, it's definitely cheesy to say the whole carve space thing, but it, it comes from somewhere, you know, like pulling out low end on guitars. I, I'll go up to like 150 Hertz sometimes if I have to, because I'm usually working with really growly bass that can take care of the rest of, that whatever like of whatever I'm removing totally fine and I won't miss that in in the in the guitars per se I'm with you on that like I, I roll off my guitars quite a bit like leads definitely will go up to like 150 yeah you, it, without, you without it. thought especially when you start adding um like I don't know about you but on leads I'll generally put like a a verb sometimes and definitely like a delay if the part calls for it and when the notes start repeating or when the notes start going through an artificial verb you're getting another low end buildup that you didn't have before for sure so why why have all this low end you don't need when basically your kick and bass can take care of your low end for the most part definitely what's a good lesson that you learned from another producer or an engineer um there's definitely been a few of them it's always hard to recall because I never did the like studio intern thing. I, I basically kind of always did it like myself and haven't watched from a lot of people. But a big thing I learned is session management. And you'd be so surprised at like how many guys don't have that together. It doesn't mean that you're going to have a bad mix. It doesn't mean that you're going to do a shit job. It, it's just one of those like peace of mind things. Like if you're going to clean your house, clean your session up. You know, if you're going to, if you're going to, send tracks off to somebody especially make them gain stage and right if you track something a little bit low you know maybe take a second and clip gain it up a little bit for me i'm gonna do it anyways or i'm gonna whatever but just sort of session management was a huge one especially it's not as much as i learned it as much as i was like reassured when i saw other people's sessions or other people's tracking and realized that it was similar to what i'm doing even though i might not be able to reproduce or make a mix as great as my favorite mixers, it was really cool to see that my favorite producers, it was really cool to see that like my favorite producers and mixers all sort of share this common cleanliness in their work. 
Yeah. And I think that's also a product of like when you're mixing other people's productions and they've done the recordings and stuff like you, you just want to know what it is. It's going back to that audio one thing, yeah. right? Like you need to know what's what. Oh, definitely. I'm, I mean, yeah, I can solo it and listen through, but sometimes uh, your stereo room mics might be your mono room mics and I might be fucking it up because I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah for sure i've definitely i've had a couple sessions where i've sat in with other engineers and like sometimes sometimes watching people's like disorganization at the same time is just like as maddening oh yeah i worked on a couple sessions with another engineer who who has done amazing things and he's done like he's won juno awards and grammys and all that kind of shit and like i looked at his mixes and i was like what the hell is this stuff yeah like, you know but i guess to him it's organized <laughs> yeah and that's the thing like if you're not sending it out to mix i mean do whatever works there's yeah. there's never a hard and fast rule. And before we got computers to look at every single little detail, people just did what felt right rolling off a tape machine or something. So it's it's not a uh, it's not a set in stone thing, but it definitely maybe for me especially makes my life easier to know that everything is clean and everything is like properly edited and everything is ready to go. Yeah, definitely. I'm with you on that mm-hmm. one. Do you have any um, special tips or, or tools that you used that have helped you with your workflow or the quality of your mixes? Uh, not particularly. Uh, mostly uh, the 1176s on vocals were always super nice. Although out of convenience sake these days, I don't even use my real ones that much, especially if I'm like having to do a recall from home or something like that. Uh, we have a JDK compressor at the studio, which is really great on drum bus. So that's been sort of like a tool that I've really liked. Um, and I'll, I'll leave it for sometimes and then, you know, play with another drum bus plugin or something or another mix, pl- mix bus plugin for drums and then uh, still end up kind of going back to it because it just makes the most sense and sounds the best. But uh, I don't know, tip wise, yeah, I mean, definitely keeping everything clean and um Gate, manually gating toms is always nice. I know a lot of guys sometimes just dip them down in volume, but I'll go in and like actually clean them up. And I'll even talk to, if I'm producing and I'm sending it off to a mixer, I'll even ask them in advance, like, hey, do you want me to gate these toms? Do you have an assistant to do it? Or do you not gate toms? You know, just because I know what I'd want to receive. So I'd know I'd want to ask and send it out as ready as possible for somebody else. It's basically just, yeah, back to just management of your sessions and everything like that. For sure. So a lot of people that are listening to this are people that are just kind of getting started in recording and mixing and um, might not know kind of where to start. Do you have any advice for that? Don't worry about starting huge. Uh, start small. Get yourself just like an interface that uh, everything sounds good these days. You know, it's not like 10 years ago where the inbox sounded like crap and you had to shell out money for something sort of better. Like <clears throat> the... I'm on an Apogee Duet here or Duet 2 at home that I picked up used for like nothing. Grab that and you've got yourself a really great interface to start with right away. You know, it's so much cheaper. It's so much easier to get into this than it was even five or 10 years ago. The best place to start is do, you know, watch videos on YouTube because the community's huge for that now. And, um, Get yourself a starter interface, get yourself an, a 57, get yourself, that's all, honestly, that's kind of all you need. Or like, I mean, I've got an, the SM7, and the SM7 is great because it, you can do like guitar cabs with it, plus you can do a vocal with it, plus you can whatever. Don't worry about getting drum sounds, because if you ever hit the point where you're, you know, getting good enough to do drums, you don't need your own studio to do drums. You can go rent out a studio that's great with a great engineer to do a drum 
track. So start with, start with a couple of the basics, start with watching some videos about it, start with listening to your favorite records and figuring out why you like them. Because that's a really big thing is like, oh, you know, I wanna record this or I wanna make a record that sounds like my favorite record. What did they do? Is there like an in-studio thing about that record? Is there like, um, do they talk about the record anywhere or gear they used on the record and things like that? And you know, sometimes you get super surprised and realize a whole record was done with Kempers or a whole record was done with plugins or something like that. So start from, start with just knowledge, like start with, yeah, start with knowledge pretty much. Yeah. And in terms of uh, working with different bands and clients and getting them, do you have any advice for that? Where to start with that? Um, I would say basically start with your friends. Uh, start with people who want to sort of, you know, make a record. What I am going to say, and some people might disagree, is don't ever do it for free. Because you know, even when I started, I didn't think about it at the time. It's not like I actively set out to not do it for free, but I still charged like 80 bucks a song when I started. And, and I didn't, I barely knew what I was doing. I had a little mixer and 001 and a bedroom, you know? Um, but a big part of getting clients is showing the world that you're serious about it. And, you know, doing the occasional thing for free after a little while or doing a quick like test mix or something cool, but start, start with the mindset that you want to do this with your life. Like, you know, you don't go into work and work for free. Don't do this for free. Anybody, any, everybody has value. Everybody can bring something to the table or everybody can learn. And what's, what's 50 bucks to your buddy, even if they screw it up, it's, it's just sort of helps out, you know, it's sort of that kind of thing. Be, it's very true. Yeah. And like, be confident in it too. Maybe don't go for clients until you've worked on a few things yourself and gotten some feedback on them or, um, you know, record your own band first. Cause like a lot of guys who get into recording are musicians to begin with. So play, you know, use your own band as guinea pigs. You don't have to release that stuff. You just have to play around with it and learn sort of whatever. But, uh, you know, a big part of clients is word of mouth and being able to, you know, deliver something at least sort of a value and the you'll be more inclined to work harder when you've got that motivation behind you. I agree. Yeah, so that's basically what I say. It's really tough to, I'm not going to say it's tough to get clients, but it is tough to get clients. So don't don't be sad if it takes a while either, you know? Like it's definitely something yeah. that doesn't happen overnight for anybody. Yeah, I, I totally agree with your point of asking to get paid a little bit, even, you know, even if it's 50 bucks, like you said, it still places some sort of value on your work. Yeah. And and lets the band know that you're you're going to put in some effort. Exactly. It's not just a free thing where you don't care about it. Yeah, like nobody's nobody's time is worth nothing. Everybody has something else they could be doing with their day. You know, I'm like I'm at home today, we're doing this and after this I'm going to be doing some, you know, uh recalls and things like that or a bit of editing or something and those are part, that's part of my job. Like I wouldn't be doing those things on my own. I'm doing them because they're parts of clients work, you know, that I have to get done. So there's value in all my time. There's value in all your time and there's value in everybody's time. So the, the sooner you establish that, the sooner everybody realizes that about themselves and understands why you're asking for it to begin with. For sure. 
Well, speaking of time, we're getting to that time where we're going to start to wrap up. Oh, yeah. So how can people follow you online or what's the best way that they can reach out to you if they're interested in working with you or learning more? Uh, you can hit up my website, samguayana.com, S-A-M-G-U-A-I-A-N-A.com, because my last name is ridiculous. Um, Twitter and, uh, my Twitter is a bit of a joke actually, but my Instagram is, I do a lot of like, you know, studio stuff with my Instagram. You can check it out. Same thing at Sam Guayana. Uh, check out my Facebook. I'm always, my email address is just, you know, Sam Guayana at gmail.com. Shoot me an email, talk to me about whatever. I'm always open to talk shop with anybody, or I'm always open for, you know, giving a bit of feedback on things or, you know, I'm always open to learn myself. If you think I said or something ridiculous or wanted to hear something else about my mix shoot me a message and let me know that i'm an idiot because we all are learning every day you know you're gonna get all these people writing you about the 1176 thing you're such a dummy what are you doing (laughs) you ruined that track that i love so much now that i know it was that (laughs) awesome well thanks so much man i really appreciate it you had tons of great advice man thanks dude thank you So there you go, guys. That was my interview with Sam Guayana. I had a really fun time chatting with him. He's a really smart guy, and I just love the work he does, and I think he shared some really cool information. So I hope you found that useful. I've already got a bunch of other interviews lined up with some other great engineers, so I'm sure you're going to get a lot of great information out of those ones as well. So that being said, if you haven't yet, please subscribe to this podcast. If you can also go to the iTunes store and leave a rating and a review, that would be amazing. And one last thing, if you're not familiar with MasterYourMix.com, check out the website. It's dedicated to helping engineers, artists, and producers make great quality recordings and improve your skills. And on that website, I update it with weekly videos and tips and tricks to try. I also send out emails to my mailing list with all of these videos and a whole bunch of other cool stuff. So to get on that mailing list, all you've got to do is visit the website. And at the top of the homepage, there's a link to download your free copy of the Ultimate Mixing Blueprint. And that is just basically a step-by-step guide for EQing and compressing a bunch of different instruments within your mix. I show you settings to try and what to look out for within your tracks when you're mixing. So once you download that, you'll be automatically added to the mailing list, and then you'll start to receive all of the weekly updates. So check it out, guys, and I'll talk to you guys in the next episode. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.